word. I'm going to say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the KJZZ Studios in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on Word, we're back from spring break and just in time for National Poetry Month. On this episode, we head to the University of Arizona Poetry Center in Tucson. Well, via Zoom anyway. I was asked a while back about poems about video games. (laughs) And it's really fascinating to see how people connect with poetry. Plus, we'll sample some poetry and talk verse with Tucson poets. If we could just move the focus to reading. So instead of poetry month, we could do poetry reading month. But first, the Tucson Poetry Festival is April 17th and 18th. It's virtual again this year, and recently I talked with one of its organizers and board members, Richard Leese, who has what some might say is a surprising day job for a poet. By day, I work in planetary science at the University of Arizona. Uh, we have a spacecraft in orbit around Mars. Um, right. One of our instruments is a telescope high rise and we take images of the surface of Mars. Um, and then I'm also a poet um, and do a lot of writing. I teach workshops at the writer's studio and I help organize the annual Tucson Poetry Festival. That's outstanding. You know, I guess I might give you the compliment of saying that you think with both sides of your brain. And I mean that quite literally because of the research about the left side versus the right side. That's fascinating that you're also a planetary scientist and a poet. You know, years ago, I can remember being in some workshops with fellow teachers, and essentially they were interdisciplinary committees, and we were trying to figure out ways that we might share common curricula sort of across the board, right? And this was kind of new at the time. I think that this has been going on for well over 20 years now. But at the time, it was kind of a new idea that, you know, you might read a piece of literature in your English class, and then how might that piece of literature work into a math problem or something like that? But one of the things that I can remember asking is like, and me being fascinated with science, but not a scientist, talking to an engineer, and I just said, you know, I, I marvel at the kinds of things that you build. And he said, Tom, where do you think we get our ideas from? If you didn't have the type of imagination and the inventiveness in arts and literature, we would have nothing to build. And that just struck me so deeply. Do you feel like that kind of marriage, if you will, is going on within your own personal space, within your own mind? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I so many of my coworkers actually are quite similar. Many of them came from fine arts or music backgrounds. Um, some of them chose a kind of a, a later in their life to change careers to geosciences and planetary science and And so I think um, we all have a lot of influences and passions. And I don't necessarily agree with the idea that there are people who are one type of brain and, and, or the other right or left. And, you know, I think either side can be um, explored, enhanced and bring them together. Sure, that that is, the results are amazing. 
What is your role then with the Tucson Poetry Festival? Obviously, this is National Poetry Month, and we would normally be getting eager to go see folks in person and to hear people read, to hear them perform, or maybe for those of us who actually do that ourselves, looking to perform in front of audiences. Yeah, I'm one of five board members um, with the Tucson Poetry Festival. And and of course, last year, last April, we had to make a decision about moving to a virtual space. And it worked really well for us. And we're doing the same again this year, though, of course, we're, we're hoping next year we'll be able to uh, you know, have a live um, space and, and get to see our poets live and in person. In some ways, this has been a great opportunity for poets to participate in these kind of readings and workshops and activities from wherever they are. Exactly. And also, I have heard from numerous people that they feel like their audience has expanded. Because if it's put out there to the world, for instance, you don't have to worry about hopping on a flight to Tucson or, you know, making a long drive, for instance. Not that people wouldn't want to. It's just that that's one less thing that they have to worry about. And possibly, you know, if they have a book out, they've opened that up to a wider audience uh, for sales, for instance. Do you find that to be the case with people that you talk to? Yes, definitely. They are participating in these online events. And on the one hand, we're, we're often surprised by how many people are registering and, and signing up to see them. But it's also an opportunity to record them as well. And it's been pretty incredible to see, you know, some of the video from last year's events, um, just how many people more people had the opportunity to to watch. Um, maybe they weren't able to attend right at that time, but that video is available and, and they can watch anytime they'd like. Now, you mentioned you're part of a larger board. What are some of the criteria that you use to determine who you were going to feature for this year's festival and festivals in the past? Well, we are looking at local poets kind of as a first pass, but since we've been remote the last couple of years, we decided to get ambitious and kind of cast a wider net and, and see if other poets outside the area were also available. And we basically bring in, you know, our favorites who were reading right then. Um, we'll share with each other videos of the poets from YouTube, say, and just kind of see how they are in presenting in front of an audience and just what they're reading, what sort of their energy level is. We kind of like a mix of just different personalities because that is what's so great about poetry in general, right. just the, the diversity. Boy, I had never thought about that using technology, Zoom, YouTube, wherever these things are recorded as kind of like a screening, almost as if you would cast an actor or an actress for a role. It is partly that. I think it begins as show and tell. You know, we just right. want to share with each other our, our favorite poets. But we often take note of like, oh, wow, they have a lot of great energy. Um, they would be really interesting to present. Well, I wonder if you would share some of your own personal energy. Do you happen to have a short poem that you might take us out with? I do. I have a poem coming out in the latest issue of Impossible Archetype, edited by Mark Ward. And this poem is inspired by a line from Maggie Nelson's Bluettes. 
The title is Bird Chooses to Make a Habitat of Heart. I loved him. I still do. There's no getting around the pecking, scrabbling, claw mark scarring. No chasing the bird out once it's found its way in. A broom does not reach to the ceiling where the bird flutters in panic. Love cannot be abandoned. The foul nest only has so much room. Give me back my heart, beautiful bird. Mistake me for an open window. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that poem with us, Richard. Was that actually written over the course of this last year? It was definitely revised a lot mm-hmm. over the last year. Um, it was a process of you know, taking some old drafts and really condensing it and figuring out what this poem wanted to be. That's interesting you say that because I can almost feel that, not knowing that ahead of time before just asking now, I feel like this poem was a struggle to write for you. And maybe that's just because of the tone, the way that you read it. It was, you know, in these poems, we're often exposing something about ourselves as poets. And there was a much longer version of this poem before I kind of was able to narrow it down to what it is now. Well, Richard Lee, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and sharing some info with us about the Tucson Poetry Festival, which is upcoming. We will put links up on our own website and also for sharing a piece of your life and a piece of your work with us. Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you so much. This was a great opportunity. You can find out more about Richard Lease and the Tucson Poetry Festival on our website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. I'm Jay Ellison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on KJZZ with true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world. Moss shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. Moss stories aren't part of the disposable daily information flow. They stick with you. The Moth Radio Hour airs Saturday at 3 on KJZZ. From the courthouse to the schoolhouse to the doctor's office, KJZZ brings you the news that matters to you. We need to look at the ugly, cold, hard facts of what this pandemic is doing to student achievement. Scientists have established the roles political rallies, restaurants, religious services, and gyms play in large-scale coronavirus spread. Now, recent contact tracing data adds children's sporting events to the roster. For the news you can trust, listen to KJZZ 91.5 every day. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. The Poetry Center at the University of Arizona is one of the state's gemstones that has garnered international repute for its diversity and wealth of poems housed in its stacks. But the pandemic has kept its doors shuttered for months. Sarah Kordemeyer is library director for the center and also fields phone calls for the weekly Ask a Librarian offering. I caught up with her recently and began by asking her what's been the most difficult part about having its doors closed to the public. I think it's been the isolation. Uh, The Poetry Center is really set up as a place to gather and converse and read. And we're also really, really pretty focused on in-person events and the printed book. And so this era where we all have to be in our houses communicating through screens has been particularly tough for us. We really had to scramble um, to think about how we could help people connect to poetry 
in different ways. And I'm really pleased by how that's turned out. I think there's been a lot of creative thinking. My coworkers have been amazing. And uh, I'm really hopeful that we can take some of what we've learned forward into, into, into the post-pandemic times. Uh, but yeah, we, 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 really, we really started working on our digital presence, um, essentially. We had, we had digital resources to work with, fortunately, and we really started to promote those. Um, and we translated everything we possibly could online. We put some of our reading series online. Uh, we have a new series called uh, the Institute for Inquiry and Poetics, which is a reading series that brings together artists over Zoom to have conversations and to read together. Uh, we were able to put our kids programming called Kids Create online. And uh, then we were also able to um, work with several folks, um, both inside and outside our institution, to launch a new podcast called Poetry Centered. So Poetry Centered has been a real, a really interesting success. Uh, that, that has been a podcast in which we invite a guest curator into our online audio video archive, which is called VOCA. They put together a set of, you know, three or four readings, just tracks uh, that they enjoy. They talk about how those tracks connect to them and then they close with the reading of their own work. And so those kinds of initiatives are things that I'm really, really hopeful that we can carry forward and reach new audiences with. Yeah, that's really one of the cool parts, I think. And an interesting byproduct, surprising to many people is the, of course, you want to take care of your local audience and or your regional audience, but that these kinds of things have opened up to a world audience. And on that thread, with your Ask the Librarian interactive offering that was described in the Arizona Daily Star recently, <laughs> uh, Bill Finley wrote a special, and that was one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you, apart from this being National Poetry Month, is just the variety of inquiries that yeah. have come in, and, and you've fielded a lot of those. Tell me about some of the more surprising ones. Well, it's just, people people will call with um, the most interesting personal questions. And it's really fascinating to kind of learn about what sticks in people's brains with poems and what doesn't. It just makes me incredibly happy when somebody can ask me, for example, like, there was this poet that came by like several years ago and I can't, I can't quite remember who it was, but they have, they have a description of what the poetry was about. And I can often point them toward the right person on VOCA. I was asked a while back about poems about video games <laughs> and it's really fascinating to see how people connect with poetry. And I think the ask of the librarian phone feature has been a really useful construct because I think sometimes folks get a little intimidated by the beauty of the Poetry Center building or they, they think they're bothering us if they ask a question. Um, and with Ask a Librarian, I'm there expressly to answer questions. And so I think people feel good about reaching out. And the other thing is that it's really, really lovely just to hear people's voices. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because we've been in isolation or severely sequestered. And this Ask a Librarian happens on the phone Wednesdays from 1 to 4 p.m., right? It does. Okay. Yep. Sometimes I describe books like children because I don't have any. And poetry certainly weighs heavy in my own personal collection. What does the Poetry Center for you being there, you know, day by day, week by week, what does that do for you sort of personally and, and professionally? I mean, you're, you're lucky enough to make a living doing this. Yeah, no, it's, it's wonderful to be, a, to be a poet and to find employment in the field. It's, uh, right. I, I just feel incredibly lucky. <laughs> yeah, the Poetry Center is such an incredible collection for working poets in a number of ways. I think, I think people interact with it differently depending on their working style and how they like to find inspiration. For me, being surrounded by a collection of contemporary poetry that's that diverse gives me a lot more permission 
to play around. It also broadens my reading really considerably. I think, um, you know, in MFA programs, certainly in mine, we read very deeply and in great detail. The Poetry Center collection helps me move outward and move and read more broadly. I've gotten such wonderful, playful prompts from things I've caught a glimpse of as they w- go whizzing by me as we catalog them. Uh, for example, there's a, there's a really wonderful book called Zona from Ort, which is uh, a facing page <laughs> erasure of Elizabeth Barrett Browning's Sonnets from the Portuguese in English and in German. So an, an English language poet and a German language poet work together uh, to erase these sonnets. <laughs> Oh wow! Uh, and they they created they created new poems out of them. And when I saw that, I was kind of in a rut myself with my own creative work. I had just came out of the MFA. I just felt like I'd been I'd, I'd worked really hard on that, and I was kind of feeling kind of drained. And uh, seeing those erasures gave me the permission to, that I needed to just start playing around. Um, in my case, with uh, found found poetry, mm-hmm. and I just started playing with the Brothers Grimm, and I wound up getting a whole second manuscript out of it. So the collection has a huge impact on the way I live as a poet and the way I work. I mean, were these translated into German as well? Because my first thought is, mm-hmm. wow, the syllable count for, you know, Germans have a word for everything, literally everything, right? And, and if and they so, don't, they'll make a new one. Right. So <laughs> I'm just wondering, you know, on a syllable count, is that like, I don't know, two German words to five American words or something like that for a sonnet? <laughs> I think it, it kind of depends. The interesting thing is that that particular book, presents the erasures and it doesn't present um, the initial, you can't really see the initial Uh, uh, translated text underneath. And so you wind up with these very strange, fragmented, interesting poems. It would be tough to translate metered verse in general. And I think into German would be a particularly interesting challenge. Everybody's looking to host live events. (laughs) We're still in the midst of this vaccine rollout. I know numerous people who are older than I am who have gotten their second shot, but for a lot of folks, and certainly for younger folks, they've been lucky to even get one, if any. Where do you think uh, the Poetry Center will be, say, by this summer? Are you thinking that you'll be open? We have hopes in that direction. Uh, We don't have definite dates yet, but we're working really hard toward reopening. We're completing, for example, a a renovation, both of our event space and of our um, downstairs exhibit space. We're about to get some new display cases where we can showcase rare books much more effectively. Um, And we're also kind of working in tandem on a project called the Global Vaccine Poem, which folks can uh, check out by going to globalvaccinepoem.com, where we're basically giving folks a poetry prompt during that 15 minute period where they're waiting for their vaccine. Um, oh, to, that's great. The, the, the observation period, uh, which that, that's a collaboration with the uh, WIC Poetry Center at Kent State. And it's, um, it's, a real, it's a really cool idea. I wish it was mine, but it's not. It's just uh, some great coworkers doing amazing things. Um, so we're, we're trying to work in the present moment um, as much as we can try to rise to respond to that. Cause I think poetry has a great deal to say to us and a great deal of comfort to offer in times of crisis. But in the meantime, we are working toward our reopening, and we, we are hopeful to be a little bit more open toward the end of the summer. Well, we will certainly put on our website the information for Ask a Librarian. And Sarah yes. Kortemeyer, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us about the University of Arizona Poetry Center and the value of poetry as we are hopefully sliding out of this pandemic. Yes, and uh, I wish everyone a very healthy and very safe spring. Thank you so much for having me. You can find out more about the Poetry Center at the University of Arizona by going to our website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona 
in the region. Hey, it's Peter Sagal. Some people think that smart speakers are a futuristic surveillance device straight out of George Orwell, constantly monitoring you as you engage in your most private actions and conversations. Well, they are. But did you know they're also a radio? That's right. You can ask your smart speaker to play NPR to hear your local station and all your favorite NPR shows. And it will. It will also report you to the central ministry. But why not enjoy yourself while you still can? We understand. Sometimes we need to take a break from the news and laugh. The last page of his biology final was missing because Snoop had mistakenly used it to roll an enormous and nearly relationship-destroying doobie. The dog smoked his kid's homework. (laughs) We all crave a little levity and fun. You can listen to KJZZ to get the important news of the day and a few laughs. Trust KJZZ for the perfect mix. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. We close out this edition of the podcast with Jefferson Carter from Tucson. Although he's retired from teaching, he's still very active in the poetry scene and has a wealth of material published. I asked him recently if he's adjusted to virtual readings after nearly a year of venues being closed. It hasn't been an adjustment. Uh, I don't like seeing myself very much because I'm, yeah, I feel like I'm getting old and gray and scary looking. <laughs> uh, and then, I, but I do get to look at all the different people as I'm reading because, you know, their images are up and it's, it's pretty funny because, you know, you'll see them falling asleep or, you know, drinking and it's something that doesn't happen in a live reading. Right. You don't have that kind of focus. I mean, you might, of course, hear people's reactions or whatnot, yeah, but yeah. seeing their well, face they, up front, they, right? They're muted usually, so they'll clap. They'll just do a silent clap. It's been fun. Uh, have you been writing poetry since you could remember when? No, I I went to Pomona College in 61, and I took a couple of creative writing classes there. I I think in the seventh grade, I, uh, we studied Keats's uh, on first looking into Chapman's Homer. And it, for some reason, it got to me, and I, and I wrote uh, an imitation of it. And I think I always knew I wanted to write poetry, but I put it off for a long time because I didn't think I'd be very good at it. And then around 1970, when I was in graduate school, I wrote a couple of poems and sent one out, and it was accepted by a small journal in Texas. So, you know, I just kept writing after that. I want to talk to you about the state of publishing, because I've seen a thread in, in which you had some remarks that interested me, and that is... From my own perspective, I went to college and university in the 90s into the Uh mid-90s. And, you know, zines were pretty popular. You could self-publish, but it was very frowned upon, and it was actually still kind of difficult. Uh Uh, Fast forward to a more recent era, and it seems like just about anybody who wants can put up a blog, put their poetry out, get something self-published. How do you feel about the state of publishing? Yeah, I'm really not very popular in Tucson. I get ridden out of town on a, on a, <laughs> a pole quite often, tarred and feathered. I mean, one of the things I, I think is that I call this uh, the creative writing industry. It, it's a whole group of professional writers who've sort of turned turned the whole thing about writing poetry into uh, a kind of a democracy, which is okay. But I wish the focus were more on people reading poetry instead of writing it, because everybody's writing poetry. And I I like to say this, although I I can't prove it, that every American over the age of six is encouraged to write poetry and try to publish it. And and that's what I see. Like, you know, the 
uh, blogs and sites, online sites and journals, it's just flooded and flooded with poetry. You know, and some of it's competent, but but I'm not interested in competent poetry these days. But, Others would say, well, you're just afraid of competition, right? Well, no, there's no competition. If, if someone's going to write, they're going to write no matter what, no matter how, you know, they're discouraged or whatever. I'm just saying if we could just move the focus to reading. So instead of poetry month, we could do poetry reading month. That's what I would like to see. Because, you know, I came to poetry from reading it. Likewise. And I think and if you want to be a good writer, no matter what right. style, right. you need to be a very good reader, correct? Yeah, you, you need to read a lot. And, and a lot of the young poets that I was teaching when I was at Pima College, they, you know, they didn't want to read other poets because they, they were afraid that would somehow... Uh, mess up their own unique style. And, and I try to talk them out of that. You know, another one is about self-publishing. I, I think uh, that's just flooded the so-called market. You know, it takes me hours to find one good poem out of these millions of haystacks that are being published and self-published. What makes a good poem in your estimation? Oh, good Lord. <laughs> I mean, you knew I had to ask, right? <laughs> no. Uh, I mean, they're different. The, the poets, I, I guess all I can really do is, is mention a couple of poets that I like. There's a, a, a very, very fine woman poet, Ray Armentrout. There's Tony Hogan, who's a, you know, he got his MFA from the University of Arizona. He's a great poet. He just died a few years ago. Uh, I think images of very uh, vibrant images, original figures of speech. I don't think there are a whole lot of new ideas under the sun, but you know, for me, poetry is a matter of how you say it, not what you say. The form and the content should reinforce each other is another thing. Like I'm, I'm seeing a lot of uh, poems that call themselves sonnets, which is weird, but they're not sonnets. And I keep asking a question like, when does a sonnet become a sonnet, you know, when does it become <laughs> not a sonnet? And everyone jumps, well, people jump on me and say, oh, you old stick in the mud, and you know, and I, I don't get it. Why would you call a 13-line non-rhyming poem a sonnet? It, it makes no sense. Uh, and, and I think today's criticism isn't very good either, the poetry criticism. I, I think we're all sort of just uh, been democratized too far, although I like it better than the old uh, academics sort of taking over. It seems to me you're just saying we need to strike a balance, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like there's a, a prejudice against something that is called academic poetry, and usually that simply means that the people who write this stuff don't read it very well, and I can't see why we can't read poems really well and have the poem itself be something that, that's very strong on the page. You seem very prolific from what I've seen. Are you working on anything currently, or do you have something recently that's just yeah, been published? Yeah, well, my last book came out last year. It's called Birkenstock Blues. Um, my covers are done by this very, very fine artist, Jim Wade from Tucson. I wondered if you'd take us out with a short poem of your own. Sure, this is a, a poem from Birkenstock Blues. It's called Life's Partner. For convenience, I and my life partner, the woman formerly known as my wife, have numbered our arguments. Number three, you're so negative. Number eight, you're naive. Number 11, another beer already. Number 13, you don't listen to me. But I do. I just don't agree. 
now my life partner's on the couch watching live PD. She's pleased with the police. So kind to the miscreants in trailer trash they apprehend. Of course they're kind. They're on camera without looking at me. She holds up three fingers. My life partner wants to make a deal. She'll stop storing our broken pepper mill upright in the spice rack, pepper everywhere like coarse soot. She'll store the mill on its side if I stop switching off the light over the dining room table whenever she's in another room. Why? Why does she need that light on all day? She raises both fists and opens each one twice. Number 20, you don't love me. Wow. And I feel like that actually could have been written during the course of this last year because folks have been <laughs> confined in their houses and dealing with each other so closely. Yeah, I don't yeah. know what well, the divorce rate's like. I dedicate this poem usually to all couples in the audience who have been together for more than six months. <laughs> Jefferson Carter from Tucson, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and sharing a piece of your life and work right. with us. Okay. Well, thanks, Tom. You can find out more about Jefferson Carter on our website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks so much for supporting the literary arts in Arizona and the region. Word. Word? Word. What's the word? Thanks for listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.